From CPR News, this is Colorado Matters. Demarius Thomas helped lead the Denver Broncos to Super Bowl victory, but as good as he was on the field, he perhaps made an even bigger impression away from the game. You know, he was just, he was very rare and he was very, very special. We reflect on Thomas's legacy and his connection with people, especially children. Then redistricting, midterm elections, and federal relief money. The Purplish team explores how that could shape the upcoming legislative session. I think lawmakers do feel a sense of pressure with you know, having this amount of money. A lot of it's one-time money. So how do you spend that in a way that's going to make an impact, not going to lead to a lot of ongoing expenses that the, maybe the state can't afford in the future? Plus, a new flight plan for Denver's landmark air traffic control building... As you enjoy the gifts of family and friends during this holiday season, all of us here at Colorado Public Radio would like to thank members, businesses, and volunteers who are such a vital part of the work we do every day. Colorado Public Radio wouldn't be able to do what it does or be here for you without you. Thank you for being part of the Colorado Public Radio community and on behalf of listeners all over Colorado, thank you for your support. Happy Holidays. This is Colorado Matters from CPR News and KRCC. I'm Nathan Heffel. On Sunday, the Denver Broncos paid tribute to one of their all-time great players. The Denver Broncos family lost one of the greatest and most beloved players in franchise history with the passing of former wide receiver Demarius Thomas on Thursday evening. Thomas was a dominant threat on the field, starring for the Broncos during one of the most successful periods in team history, known as DT. The five-time Pro Bowler and Super Bowl 50 champion also won the hearts of fans off the field with his incredible devotion to serving others. Thomas's humility and kindness defined him as an all-time great who will be remembered and missed by all. Demarius Thomas died Thursday in his home in suburban Atlanta. Well, the cause of death hasn't been confirmed, officials in Georgia have stated that it stemmed from a medical issue. As good a player as Thomas was on the field where he helped the team to victory in Super Bowl 50 five years ago, he perhaps made an even bigger impression away from the game. Rich Barrows, club director of the Denver Boys and Girls Club, spoke with CBS Denver after Thomas's death. When our kids meet a Bronco player, they just think they're their best friend. What size shoe are you? 14. What size you wear? Four and a half. Soft-spoken and always smiling and laughing and joking with the kids. Lindsey Jones, who covered Thomas and the Broncos for the Denver Post and is currently a senior NFL writer for the sports website The Athletic, referred to Thomas after his passing by one of his nicknames, Uncle DT, saying he was, quote, the guy who was kind, always smiling. Lindsey joins us now to provide a little more perspective on Thomas. Hey, Lindsey. Hi. The Broncos beat the Detroit Lions on Sunday and, as I mentioned, honored Thomas before the contest. There was a memorial outside Empower Field at Mile High. Peyton Manning was spotted there with his kids. We'll hear from him momentarily. And before the first play of the game, the team took the field with only 10 players, leaving Thomas's spot at wide receiver open. What are your thoughts on this as you reflect on your relationship with Demarius Thomas, as well as possibly seeing the game and seeing that, that sign of affection that the players gave him? Well, I think it was a, it was a really fitting tribute 
to Demarius Thomas, but I just think the the reaction over the last few days, really since the the news started kind of trickling out Thursday night through everything we saw in and around the stadium on Sunday, it was just a testament to how many people were impacted by Demarius Thomas and how many people felt this truly, you know, personal connection to him. And that was from, you know, hundreds and hundreds of fans who stopped by the memorial outside of the stadium to players um, on the Broncos roster, players around the league, his former teammates, a lot of the members of the the Super Bowl 50, there were actually a couple of his former teammates who flew in um, and were on the sideline for that game before the game because they just you know, wanted to be there to pay respects to Demarius Thomas. And, you know, we've seen it all across social media. And the thing that everybody keeps coming back to is that, yes, he was one of the greatest players in Broncos franchise history, and he absolutely will be going into the team's ring of honor. He's one of the most accomplished players that this team ever had. Really why he impacted so many people is because of who he was in the locker room, who he was in the community, who he was in dealings with people like me in the media, um, the way that he was with players' families. And you heard you heard Peyton Manning talk about this. He spoke with the Broncos.com team website where you know he talked about how it meant more to him the way that Demarius interacted with his children, with his his twins, twins Marshall and Mosley, than all of the touchdowns that they caught together. And I think they connected for 60 touchdowns passes, including, you know, the the touchdown pass that Peyton Manning threw to break the NFL's career touchdown record. Right. Um, right. So it just really spoke a lot to kind of those relationships. And, you know, I always think back to just how he was with kids. Um, you know, lots of NFL players volunteer in the community and spend time with children's charities or at the Boys and Girls Club. But Nobody that I've ever been around in professional sports did it with as much sincerity and enthusiasm as Demarius Thomas. And I think that's why this hit so many people so hard was because he was so young. You know, his death was so sudden and it just, you know, it just really feels like just such a great loss that he's not going to get to experience this next chapter of his life and what good he probably could have done beyond football. You mentioned a lot of the players that he he played with. They they spoke of these little kindnesses that Thomas shared with them. Safety Justin Simmons recalled an instance when Thomas asked him how he was doing. Simmons started talking about football, but Thomas stopped him and said he was wondering about how he was faring personally. That little, hey, we're not talking football now. How are you personally, you know? And after the game, the Broncos posted a clip from former quarterback Peyton Manning on, on its website. Listen to this. It's great to my kids, great to my family, which is more important than any touchdown that he ever caught from me. But the other thing I'll say is, I mean, he was a big reason why I came out here to play. Um, I, I knew what he had done in just two years, but I also knew what I, I what he was capable of doing. And uh, that was a big part of the attractiveness of coming out to play for the Broncos. For, so for so many reasons, I'm very indebted and thankful to Demarius. Again, the first part of the audio with Manning talking about how Thomas treated his kids, I I get the impression that there was something about who Thomas was that lent himself to those sorts of gestures. I mean, would you say that was the case? Yeah, absolutely. It's because, you know, these interactions were genuine. I mean, this wasn't, you know, oh, come just pose for a picture with my child. It was DT having a genuine connection with these kids and wanting to know about their lives and what they did at school and what they were interested in. And one of my favorite stories about Demarius Thomas interacting with kind of the Bronco family children was a couple of years ago, one of their, a, a longtime assistant coach had a four or five-year-old son and the, the little boy was obsessed with 
Demarius Thomas, because for years, one of the things that the Broncos will do is on Saturdays, they kind of have a, a family day. Saturday's the day before a game and the coaches and players, but especially the coaches, they bring their families in because they don't get to spend that much time with their kids during the season. And so it's this, this time they have breakfast together. The kids get to run around on the field. And, you know, there's this one little boy who is obsessed with Demarius Thomas. And he was turning, I think it was his fifth birthday, his fourth or fifth birthday. And he was adamant that he wanted Demarius to come to his party. And so he sent him an invitation and the coach said, you know, DT, it's okay, man. You don't, you don't need to come to this, you know, little kid's birthday party, but sure enough, the, the party day rolls around who, who is there right on time. It's Demarius Thomas. And he stayed the entire party. It wasn't something that he showed up to do, you know, a photo op or anything. He was there because this little boy wanted him there and he wanted to be part of it. And, you know, it was kind of those genuine interactions. You know, there's, there is often this distance between players and media and that's, that's for good reason. But with Demarius, there was always the sense of, you know, he understood that we were there doing a job that we were people with families and stories and that we were interested in him as a person who had a story and was was much more than just a football player and so i think i think it was this those little personal moments that you know we all are really remembering and that's why we're all so kind of sad right now still you know he had his own personal story that was so tied to his life i mean you you can't tell his story without talking about his relationship with his mother and grandmother when he was 11, his mother, Katina Stucky Smith, and his grandmother, Minnie Pearl Thomas, were arrested on drug distribution charges. His mother was sentenced to 20 years in prison and his grandmother to life without parole. In 2015, then-President Barack Obama commuted his mother's sentence, and the following year, Obama granted his grandmother clemency as well after she'd served 16 years in federal prison. That is a, that's a story for, for anyone, but, but for, for Thomas, I mean, what was that like for him growing up and, and living in that situation? Yeah, so I mean, it, it's, it's, it's almost impossible to imagine what he lived through as a child. And um, in 2010, the Broncos made him their first of two first-round draft picks. And I was a Broncos beat reporter working at the Denver Post at the time. And, um, you know, it's customary that you go write a big profile on the first round draft pick. And I, that, that night that they drafted him, I said, I, I have to go do the story. Nobody had really done it in depth while he was in college at Georgia Tech. And um, I, I went to, to South Georgia. I went to Tallahassee where his mother and his grandmother were in jail and got to meet them. And I got to spend time with him at the home where he was raised. He ended up going to live with an aunt and uncle who were very disciplinary and they, he became um, an altar boy at the church uh, or an usher at the church. And um, he had a very strict curfew and the focus was all on grades. And, you know, that really kept him, I think, on the right path. But he had this very fraught relationship with his mother as a child because it was so hard. I mean, he woke up for school one day to, you know, police just flooding his house and going through all of their things. And his mother was able to put him on the bus and say, I'll see you when I get back. And she didn't come back. I mean, he was 11 years old and she was in prison until he was, you know, a, a veteran in the NFL. And one of my lasting memories of that day that we spent together in South Georgia before he had even ever played a snap in the NFL was he said that his dream, his goal was to stay in the NFL long enough that his mother would be able to see him play a football game in person because that had never happened. He wasn't even playing football when he was 11 and she went to jail. And, you know, at that point we thought maybe she would get out in 2017. She ended up getting out in 2015. She was at Levi's stadium in February of 2016 when he played in and won a Super Bowl. She got to be around for a lot of the other kind of big games 
for the remainder of his career. But that story, to imagine having lived through something like that and to come out the other side as being such a warm, kind, giving, generous person is just really, really incredible and a testament to who he was and to the family that was around him that continued to raise him. And and the joy he must have felt when, you know, his mother and grandmother were were essentially exonerated, right? Oh, yeah. I mean, and it's really wild to think back to it because this was all kind of happening in the summer of 2015. And so this was before the 2015 season where they went on to win the Super Bowl. But, you know, he was a huge star at that point in the NFL. You know, he had been part of, he'd already played in a Super Bowl. He was part of these record-setting offenses that the Broncos had been putting together. And, um, you know, in the, the summer of 2015, he signed his massive contract, you know, the life changing type of contract that NFL players always dream of at about the exact same time that his mother's prison sentence was commuted. So imagine, I mean, these two huge, I mean, the biggest moments of his life really were happening at the same point where he was coming into this, this contract that was going to change his life, change his family's lives, you know, potentially for generations, and his mother was coming home, and he was trying to figure out how to get her settled to get her into an apartment. He had to get her a cell phone. You know, all of these things of, you know, they were going to be together for the first time since he was a little boy. But now here he was, a grown man, a grown man with a lot of money and responsibilities. Now he was going to be the one kind of trying to take care of her, and you know, it was it was just it was very emotional. You know, you couldn't help but be really happy for him to kind of see this happen. And then for her to be able to be there during their Super Bowl run was really incredible. It was in 2011 that Thomas had perhaps the biggest highlight of his career coming in overtime during a playoff game against the Pittsburgh Steelers. First snap of overtime here tied at 23. Line of scrimmage is the Bronco 20. Shotgun for Tim Tebow. Short motion is Eddie Royal. Tim play fakes in the pocket. Sets, throws, pass, caught. Demarius Thomas out over the 45 midfield. Here we go. 40, 35, foot race, 20, 15, 10, touchdown, Denver, it's over! It's over in Denver! I mean, in many ways, that improbable play spoke to the physical gifts that Thomas displayed during his time in Denver, didn't it? Oh, absolutely. I mean... Tim Tebow gets a ton of credit for that play because, you know, it was at the peak of Tebow mania, but that was Demarius Thomas. He did all of the work on that play from, you know, the, his route where he crossed over the middle of the field, you know, he had to leap into the air a little bit to catch that pass. And then the way that he ran past and through and stiff armed members of the Pittsburgh Steelers defense on his way to the end zone was, it was really incredible. And you kind of always knew this was his second season in the NFL. He dealt with a lot of injuries. You never got to quite see him at his potential yet early in his career. And that moment you saw it and you said, oh, wow, this guy is something special because it's really rare to see a guy who is as big and strong and fast and as physical as Demarius Thomas was. And, you know, that is one of the most memorable plays, not just, I think, in Broncos history, but you know, in NFL history for, you know, the Tim Tebow of it all. And for, you know, it was a massive upset. The Broncos were an underdog despite being at home in that game. Yeah. I mean, it was one of the, the surely a top five moment in Broncos history. And, you know, in my years covering the team, probably the craziest and most exciting play I ever saw live. Thomas played with the Broncos until 2018. And, and afterwards, he had short stints with a few different teams before he officially announced his retirement just this last June. Uh, here's Thomas talking about leaving football. For the last, you know, year or so or whatever it's been, 
just been trying to find myself. Uh, of course, you know, leaving ball is a tough thing. It's a, it's a tough thing to get away from because guys be trying to find that urge to do next. And it's nothing, it's nothing like ball that you can do next. So I've just been working on myself and trying to find myself, of course, getting love from my family and friends. But the main thing is just, just working on self and trying to find what I'm going to do next and, you know, building relationships where I can, you know, have people around that, that going to really help me out because it ain't easy. I ain't going to say that. It ain't easy leaving football. How is that for you, hearing that clip and, and hearing his voice? Yeah, it's it's hard because, you know, I remember being really happy that the Broncos did that for him last summer, that they, you know, a couple of the people who worked for the Broncos media department, they flew down to Atlanta to, you know, kind of do do Demaryius Thomas's retirement right. Because as you mentioned, he did leave the Broncos in 2018. He was traded to the Houston Texans shortly before the trade deadline. It was, I believe, early November. And in a really odd coincidence, he was traded to the Houston Texans the week that the Broncos played the Texans here in Denver. So it was was one of the most surreal things I've ever seen a player have to go through where he was traded to Houston, flew to Houston, flew back to Denver all in the span of a couple of days, played his former team. And so he never really got to have a proper send-off from the Broncos. And those last couple of years for him in Denver, he was still playing pretty well, maybe not quite up to the level that he had played you know, in the, the earlier 2010s during the, the Peyton Manning era. Um, but it had been a really difficult time here, and the Broncos weren't winning a lot. There was a lot of quarterback turnover. Their offenses had struggled. And you know, it was very kind of unceremonious when he left. And he was very underappreciated, I think, while he was here as a player. You know, he was part of these great Broncos offenses. You know, I think he put up tremendous numbers. But by the end of his time here, just, you know, it was it was just a difficult time, I think, for the entire organization. And so for the fact that, you know, he got to have this nice retirement moment, at least, you know, on on the internet, kind of on social media, I mean, they, they did a really good job of honoring him. I'm sad when I hear him speak like that, that clip now, because one, we just, he never got to have that next stage of his life. And I think he was still kind of coming into figuring out who he was going to be over the last couple of years of his career. He was kind of finding his voice as um, an activist. He was becoming more involved in criminal justice reform causes. He was finding ways to, you know, to, to become a a social justice activist. Um, And so I was really curious to see if he would continue to kind of move in that direction of, you know, working to to be kind of a strong voice. You know, his story is really powerful and he probably could have done a tremendous amount of good as someone who could speak for criminal justice reform. Um, So that obviously never got to happen. And then the other part of it, too, is where he said it's not easy. It's not easy to transition into your life after football. And that's something that is almost universal for for ex athletes, um, not just football players, but you know, but it, but certainly for NFL players, where your identity for so long has been playing the sport, and all of a sudden your career is over, and you have to figure out what comes next. And you know, it's just it's it's hard to think about you know what these last couple months have been like for him if he was struggling with some um, with some medical issues, which we believe is the case. You know, how much was he struggling? How hard were these last couple months as he was trying to figure out what was going to come next? So, yeah, it, it is it is hard to hear hear that stuff now. And, um, you know, it, and that is when you kind of circle it back to what that scene was like at the stadium on Sunday. He was truly honored and appreciated. And I just wish he could have felt that 
right? You know, I think he was he was going to get that ring of fame moment that day where, you know, 75,000 people were there in their 88, number 88 jerseys and see his name up in the ring of fame, um, you know, and he's not going to kind of be there for that that time to see how much I think Broncos fans truly appreciated him. And it was it was really interesting to hear some of the players say, you know, he was he was here, he was there during the game when 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 they were playing, and they could just feel that. And I think that's such a a wonderful way to uh, to remember him by by the players. Yeah, and he and it wasn't just you know a couple of his the the guys that he played with directly. It wasn't just you know, Cortland Sutton and Tim Patrick, the wide receivers, it was players up and down that roster. And I think beyond just the guys on the field, it was the impact that he made on the people who worked in the community service department, the people who worked, you know, the the equipment managers, the people who worked for the team website. He treated all of those people the same. And it was just, it was just a really tough few days across that team. And the fact that he impacted so many people there players from stars to guys who are on the practice squad with him to people across that building. You know, he was just, he was very rare and he was very, very special. And, um, you know, I think they did a really good job of honoring him. Lindsay, thanks so much for being here. I appreciate you taking the time. Thank you for having me. Hi, I'm Grace Hanover, and I donated my car to Colorado Public Radio. I had this wonderful old Volkswagen Jetta. When the transmission went out, I knew it wasn't worth investing the resources into fixing the car, and I wanted it to have a meaningful life afterward. So knowing that it would be doing good sort of out in the world, even if I couldn't use it, was part of my thinking in terms of donating it to CPR. It's super easy to donate your car at CPR.org. Now it's beginning to look a lot like politics. Tis the season to get ready for the upcoming legislative session. Let's get a read on what's happening with Purplish, the politics podcast from CPR News. Here are public affairs reporters Benta Berkland and Andrew Kenny. Well, folks, it's that special time of year when shoppers are bustling around the mall and the streets are decked with wreaths and holly. It means, of course, that the big day is coming up. The beginning of the legislative session. How could someone think you maybe were talking about Christmas? No, but no, no. <laughs> And we made a lot of calls to state lawmakers to find out what's on their wish list next year. That's right. That session is starting on January 12th. And here's just a little bit of what we heard. I'm going all in on education this year, I got to tell you. <laughs> My hope for the year is that we see, this isn't naive and being hopeful, that we see less of the bigoted and angering rhetoric, whether it's using terms like sissy or buckwheat. You know, I hope that we hear less of that and can focus more on policy. So I sort of anticipate, sadly, uh, maybe some more um, theatrics in the Capitol than than usual, which is sort of hard to imagine because it's a theatrical place. A theatrical place indeed. From member-supported CPR News, this is Purplish, a show about Colorado politics and democracy. I'm Andrew Kenny, your host this week with my colleague, Benta Berkland. Hey, Andy. Hello, hello. Good to be back in the studio with you. So let's get right into it. 
right now, December, we're in the kind of quiet season for politics. We got past the off-year election session, like we said, doesn't start rolling into motion until January. But that means there's a lot of stuff going on behind the scenes and people preparing for what could be a really interesting political year. Yes. And we're heading into the 2022 midterm election. A lot of seats are going to be up for grabs. We have a U.S. Senate race, balance of congressional power. Mm -hmm. And then also at the state house level, new political lines because we just had redistricting. Which only happens every 10 years. Right. That's making this really kind of murky for a lot of lawmakers is the fact that the districts that they'll be running in have changed, which means they could have new constituents. They're not sure if kind of the style of governing and the style of campaigning that they did in the past, how that's going to work in their newly redrawn areas. So this is a major shakeup at the state house. Yeah. And it affected some, I mean, it affected every lawmaker because every district changed, but some a lot more than others. And mm-hmm. one person that comes to mind who, who I spoke with is Democrat Carrie Tipper, an up-and-coming lawmaker. She was in a safe Democratic seat. She's from Lakewood. She was drawn into a much more conservative district. And another Democratic lawmaker was drawn into that same district, Lisa Cutter. So, Mm. you know, you either have to primary one of your colleagues or not run for re-election. She's not running for re-election. So I I talked to Tipper about kind of the change in her political fortunes. This is my likely my last session. And so I want to leave it all out on the line. Like what what is there left that I haven't been able to do that I'd like to accomplish? Well, Benta, that's a great example of the fact that people will often wait around for years in legislatures and legislative bodies waiting for that seniority, waiting for the chance to really exercise some power. And it can be disrupted quite suddenly by, say, redistricting or also by elections. So let's talk a little bit about how Democrats who are in power are feeling ahead of a 2022 midterm, which nationally is seen as being a pretty tough one coming up for Democrats. What are you hearing? A lot of times in this midterm election year, the majority party will try to focus on policies that maybe aren't as controversial, aren't as hot button. Um, The politics plays a big role. Politics and policy go hand in hand. Um, Democrats do have a very large majority in the House. They have a healthy majority in the state Senate. So some members may not want to play it, quote, as safe. So I think there will be a lot of dynamics. Yeah, you know, curiously, I talked to Senator Julie Gonzalez, who is known as one of the most ambitious lawmakers in the body. And even she said she wasn't really sure what it would look like this year because people are pretty exhausted from last year and they've already got a lot on their plates. I'm not going to front. I think a lot of us um, needed a break after a real marathon session in in 2021. But as we're coming back and and gearing up for our 22 legislative session, we've had an opportunity to breathe. We recognize that there's still a lot of work to do. And I think that's some of the dynamic we'll see. You know, there's Democrats from safer blue districts. Their constituents want certain policies to pass. They don't want to lift their foot off the gas pedal, so to speak. Mm -hmm. And other members are going to be in more competitive seats and or they may just be more moderate. That may be their political ideology. And so, uh, you know, we see that push and pull among the Republicans for sure and, and Democrats as well. Yeah, that tension is real, that question of how far to go in an election year. I heard one Democrat say jokingly, I think, that they really hoped there wouldn't be any zero greenhouse gas emissions bill that sucks all the attention up and derails everything else. Or, um, you know, more tangibly, there's the criminal justice question, where I think you're going to see a lot of debate between Democrats about 
whether they continue to push for criminal justice reform in a year where public safety is the issue for the other side. Right. And even some Democrats, including the governor, say a top priority is to make communities safer. So I think we are going to see some tension there among Democrats. There was, you know, a big criminal justice reform bill that failed last session. It was defeated by Democrats in the, the very end of session. I talked to Democratic Representative Jennifer Bacon, and Bacon said she doesn't think that bill is going to come back exactly how it was written. But I think it's dangerous for us to allow us to kind of shrink back because of things that we know aren't true. I mean, crime is up because we have too many guns out there. There are people who are still unhoused. There are people who are sick. There are people who don't have jobs. Like, we need to be talking about that, you know? Yeah, she wants to break out of that idea where reforming the system somehow contributes to worse public safety. And I think that's going to be a political discussion, a philosophical debate, a policy debate. Uh, I'll be surprised if we don't see a lot about that next session. Well, anybody who's been through a few election cycles is probably feeling like, despite how much things have changed lately, this is a pretty familiar feeling for the midterm where, you know, Democrats are falling back, Republicans see an opportunity. I'm curious about, Benta, what have you heard from Republicans? Are they all unified on one strategy on how to take advantage and win back some power in Colorado, or are they all over the place? I would not say Republicans are unified, but I think there's going to be some things that do unify the party. A lot of Republicans I've talked to said they want to focus on expanding school choice for parents and focus on parental involvement in schools, increasing funding for schools, uh, try to improve academic achievement uh, that was lost during the pandemic. Um, Public safety is something Republicans said they're hearing from constituents. I think there's other issues that certain Republicans may want to focus on, whether it's abortion or election fraud and gun policies. So I I think we'll see a whole host of things. Um, I talked to Republican Representative Matt Soper. He's from Delta. And he just noted like how the caucus in the House is going to change so much based on term limits and the new political lines. There's very few Republicans out of the 24 who are going to be coming back after this session. And there's about to be a, a pretty big swing in the Republican caucus as far as you know, the characters involved. And I do think that that some of that is also going to be reflected in the session. I mean, this is their their last session to be able to um, make those statements for future political office. And one person who we could see drawing a lot of attention is Representative Ron Hanks, a Republican. You know, he's already been known really well as one of the leading Republicans who's questioned the 2020 election results, who attended the January 6th rally in D.C., although he didn't go inside the building, um, and who also has allied himself with folks like Mesa County Clerk Tina Peters, who is under investigation for some security breaches at her elections office. Right. And he's running for U.S. Senate. There's quite a few people in that primary, but... Um, How he chooses to use his legislative platform to benefit his Senate race is something we'll be watching. Um, Speaking of people up for re-election, all of the statewide office holders, including Democratic Governor Jared Polis. Mm -hmm. And so that will add another dynamic there. He's got an agenda, literally an agenda that he wants to get done ahead of these uh, 22 elections that he wants to be able to campaign on. And from what I've heard, you might expect to see him. Uh, pretty vocally getting behind things that he likes and 
perhaps trying to do some crowd control in terms of what the legislature does. He's always a presence, especially on big bills. Uh, The question is how we might see him in the building this year. Yeah. I I mean, he has a a lot of power, very hands-on with legislation. Uh, So we'll we'll see how Democrats, they've been pretty unified, actually, considering how many Democrats are in the legislature. I've been surprised how frequently they Mm. do stick together. Behind the scenes, there'll be some grumbling and, and stuff. Um, even the budgeting process, although a lot of that, we will see some concrete ideas of just where they explicitly want to send money compared to other places. And we're already actually deep into that, despite the fact that the session hasn't begun, the budget writing process is well underway. Mm -hmm. And a huge component of that is the question of how to spend the hundreds of millions of dollars, hundreds upon hundreds of millions, that is coming to the state through federal relief packages like the American Rescue Plan. I think it's close to $4 billion. Wow, that's a lot of hundreds of millions. And I think lawmakers in both parties and on the budget committee, they were saying this is a once in a generation yeah. uh, moment in time to have this amount of money. Yeah, the word a lot of them are using is transformational. Uh, it's literally in the name of a couple of the task forces, everybody loves a task force, that are in charge of spending this money. And they're already uh, doing that work right now. And setting up these different groups, commissions, task force to to look at the spending and where to put it has been pretty bipartisan. Yeah, I was really surprised to hear. I spoke to Senate Minority Leader Chris Holbert, a Republican, and he said that so far the Democrats seem to have done a good job of managing the spending process in a bipartisan way. I haven't heard my members saying, no, we're going to need a a minority report, which leads me to believe that there's been rather strong consensus on how those dollars should be prioritized. Now, maybe it's easier to agree when you've got a bunch of money that you just (laughs) got from the federal government and you're spending it on some broadly popular concerns. I don't know. I haven't usually found that that does lead to a lot of agreement. I've seen plenty of disagreement when there's money, but granted, there's disagreement when there's not money, too. So... Granted, as well, we've also not reached the point that there's like finalized recommendations yet. So maybe that'll come a little bit later. But let's talk a little bit for now about where that money could go. One of the biggest areas, and I think this will be really interesting to follow along with, is affordable housing, where you're talking about $600 million between different homelessness and housing initiatives. That's an enormous sum of money compared to what the state is usually able to dedicate to this cause. Affordable housing, huge issue. Yeah. Here across the state, people bringing it up, you know, cost of living. Uh, how are they going to target that money? Great question. They're not done done with their list of where they'd like to be spent, The this task force. But some of the areas that you will see are, first of all, putting a bunch of money into what's called the state's revolving loan fund, which is used to fund affordable housing projects and which will be renewed because developers are paying back money into it and governments are paying back money into it after building their affordable housing projects. But then you're also seeing some relatively new stuff like investing uh, more than $100 million into what are being called these long-term homelessness recovery campuses. Uh, One would be in Denver and one would be farther out east on the plains. That's something that we don't have a lot of right now. And that's an area where you could see something brand new, essentially, out of the spending package. And I think lawmakers do feel a sense of pressure with you having this amount of money. A lot of it's one time. I mean, most Mm -hmm. of it's one time money. So how do you spend that in a way that's going to make an impact, not going to lead to a lot of ongoing expenses that maybe the state can't afford in the future? Totally. 
I mean, and for the two things I just named, there will be a hundred more specific programs that get a fair amount of money. I mean, stuff like trying to find innovative ways to build prefabricated housing gets, I think, 25 million bucks in this effort. And one other area that lawmakers in both parties are trying to put in a lot of money recovering from the pandemic and dealing with a mental health crisis we're hearing across the board from people of all ages. So uh, there's a behavioral health task force that's going to be looking at a whole host of things related to behavioral mental health. Benta, I think that those big spending proposals, the federal money is going to take up a lot of the beginning of the session. Mm -hmm. But, you know, in a typical session, anywhere between four and 600 bills might be introduced. And they tend to get very, very specific. So I have a feeling that down the road, we're going to be talking about everything from school bus driver shortages to emergency medical service funding to infertility treatments and medical insurance. Anything you can imagine is going to come up and will come up this session. Every lawmaker gets a minimum of five bills that they'll introduce. Some are allowed to introduce a lot more. It's the discretion of legislative leaders. So we will have no shortage of interesting stories to bring all of you. That's right. And that'll be coming up just in January. close out this episode we talk a lot to you now we want to hear from you we have a quick request for our listeners it's so easy it's going to help us out a lot we want to know more about who you are and what exactly you want and what you get from this podcast so if you've ever been listening to purplish and you've thought you know what i really want to tell them how they're doing or i wish (laughs) i wish andy and benta said it this way or that way now is your chance to give us feedback Uh, We are planning our legislative season right now, and we really want to make sure we're talking about the things you're most interested in and in a way you find interesting. So to that end, we've got a survey. Super easy to fill out. Take you a couple minutes, and it'll make the show better. It'll make society better. (laughs) Well, maybe just the show. We've got it posted at our website. It's at CPR.org slash podcast slash purplish. Or look for it on our individual Twitter accounts. I'm at Andy K-N-N-Y. And I'm at Benta Berkland. Public affairs reporters Benta Berkland and Andrew Kenny and Purplish, the politics podcast from CPR News. The legislative session gets underway on January 12th. When we come back, a new vision is taking flight for the landmark air traffic control building in Denver's Central Park neighborhood. This is Colorado Matters from CPR News and KRCC. Among the most popular variety of Christmas tree is a native of the Rocky Mountains, the Colorado Blue Spruce. Loved for its classic conical shape and silvery blue needles that don't shed easily after being cut, it can grow to more than 130 feet and was declared the state tree in 1939. It also grows beyond our borders, so even though many of the national Christmas trees displayed at the U.S. Capitol have been blue spruce, only one came from Colorado. The state's other contributions to the people's tree, as it's also called, were Engelman spruces. Tradition has it each year's tree takes a tour around its home state before heading to D.C. In 2020, it was a 55-foot-tall Engelman spruce that started near Telluride, towed behind a big rig in a giant cradle with a water bladder secured to its trunk and decorated with thousands of handcrafted ornaments from the people of Colorado. A Colorado postcard from Colorado Public Radio.
The old Stapleton Airport Control Tower is an imposing landmark in Denver's Central Park neighborhood, the only remaining sign that an international airport used to occupy the space where homes, parks, and stores are now. For years, it sat empty, but in 2017, the building was gutted and turned into a restaurant and bar. Then, in 2020, partially due to the pandemic, the restaurant, a punch bowl social, closed, again leaving the building empty. But a new tenant was recently announced, one that seems custom-made for the iconic control tower. My name is Eric Serrani. I am the co-founder, co-owner, and uh, president of Flight Co. Brewing. Flight Co. Brewing is an aviation-themed brewery that already has a location in Denver's Berkeley neighborhood. Serrani says being able to open a second Flight Co. location underneath the Stapleton control tower? It's surreal at the moment. It's, it's kind of hard to believe that our brand is, is going to occupy this historic landmark. Serrani barely remembers the actual airport, having taken trips to see his grandmother when he was very little. We've driven past the building a number of times throughout the years, just saying, man, it would be cool to go there with with no real path to get there. Um, And then all of a sudden, you know, this past summer when the opportunity became available, uh, like I said before, it's it's absolutely surreal. Serrani and his team say the space is perfect for their brewery with a bowling alley and mini golf course still intact from the previous owner. But Flightco wants to add its own vibe, too. I personally want to have a lot of aviation uh, aspects in there. I want exhibits. I want airplanes. You know, I, I envision it being sort of a mini aviation museum um, and attract customers to our, our business um, with more than just you know beer, food, and games. Sarani says he expects Flightco's second location to be open by next summer. And while patrons won't actually be able to go up in the tower, Sarani and his team did take the long walk to the top. You can see absolutely everything in Denver, uh, all the way almost down to Colorado Springs and, and around. So being able to have that, that vantage point up there was, was, was breathtaking. My colleague Ryan Warner and I also got to take in the view from the top of the old Stapleton Tower as part of the restoration of the site in 2017. And we brought along retired air traffic controller Mike Coulter, who worked there in the 80s and 90s. He finished his career at Denver International Airport. We began our tour in the parking lot of the tower on a sunny, crisp, clear day. Have you been back to this site since Stapleton closed. Not in... since 1995. Really? This is your first time first, back? First time back. And I wonder what is going through your mind or your heart right now. I'm wondering where everything is. I know it looks a lot <laughs> looks a lot different around here. There you aren't runways. You can't put airplanes in any of these buildings here. <laughs> We're surrounded by homes uh, because a neighborhood has grown up around what yeah. used to be taxiways and terminals. Yep. What do you feel when you look up at that tower? It looks just like it did then. You know, old, small, but was home. Now you say it's small. I guess we're going to have that experience ourselves, but what do you mean? Well, compared to DIA or any of the newer towers, it, there's not a lot of space up there, about 800 square feet, so not a lot of room to move around. Well, why don't we go up to the top of the tower, and I'd like to ask for a few of your memories <laughs> from okay. up there. And a lot of them. So, Mike, the elevator isn't operating. We're going to take the stairs all the way up? Yep, take the stairs. Okay. I've done that before. That, that, that's something you're used to? I'm used to it. How yep. many stories do you know? Uh, I can't remember what this one is. I think we're on 14 or 15 compared to DIA, which is 33. Okay, let's go up. 
With hard hats on, Mike and I begin the long climb to the top. The tower's been gutted down to the studs and concrete. We continue up the stairs. It does go on, doesn't it? On and on and on, nothing changes. Four stories, then eight, ten, twelve. We pass what would have been the control tower offices and break room. Water falls on us as snow melts on the roof from a recent storm. There's a draft, too. And it was always this cold in here, too. It never warmed up. Finally, we reach the top, and Mike Coulter takes it all in. Oh, man. What a view. Nicer view than DIA, let me tell you. Why? Closer to everything. Yeah, so much closer to the mountains than DIA. A lot. It is pretty small. How many people would work in this space? Uh, you generally have six. Six, plus all the equipment. Everything was close. With so many people in such a tight space, did it get smelly? Ah, you know, on occasion. Uh, you know, if the air conditioning went out, or a couple times in the winter when the furnace went out, you know, when, and they heated up, we'd get fog on the windows. <laughs> I remember one time we had somebody wipe the windows down because of the fog that was on when they were trying to get it going again. It was low-tech sometimes. Uh, all the time was low-tech. Yeah, compared to today, yeah, this was very low-tech. Uh, yeah, it looks a lot different. I want you to tell us about when the Pope and President Clinton <laughs> came to Denver. Their big 747s were parked. And there were two of them down there, and they were nose-to-nose. -nose. Uh, it was back in 1993, just before this closed. Uh, in fact, had DIA opened on time, all that would have taken place out at DIA. Ah. What else do you remember from that day? Well, when they were leaving, I mean, there's a set protocol for almost anything that happens with dignitaries come and go. Well, they were both parked over there, you know, and we didn't have to close the airspace down like you do today. Oh. So this airport just kept operating. Uh, and you had the Pope and the President over there. Air, Air Force, Force One. Air sitting, Force One. Yeah. And, uh, Papal One. It was an <laughs> Aerotalia 747. They were waiting for each other to leave. And through communications and however they deal with each other. I mean, obviously, we had the Secret Service up here. In the tower. They would, yeah, they would, a week in advance, their phones would come in. And it set up, and then there'd be a Secret Service agent just hanging around, oh, wow. drinking coffee, watching what was going on. But it sounds like the president was thinking the Pope would go first, and right. the Pope was they, thinking the neither president. Neither of them would knew go which first. one was supposed to leave first. <laughs> so they were literally both pointed out there, and we're like, okay, we close the airport now to let them taxi out. We shut the East West complex down. Okay, somebody move. Who went first? Uh, eventually, the Pope did. The but Pope. But you see goes somebody first. come out, somebody in a military uniform. Eventually, he saw the door open. Air Force One came out and went over to Paper One uh, and had a conversation. And between that and their radios and telephones, uh, they resolved and the president stayed there and waited until the Pope left. Uh, and he literally sat there until the Pope was airborne and then he taxied out. And Taxiway diplomacy. Yeah. Yeah. For those who haven't been in Denver long enough, one of the cool things about the old Stapleton Airport is that uh, one of the runways, taxiways, went over I-70. Over so the interstate. It's quite possible to have a 747 on top of you. Yes. Yeah. Not quite possible. Quite likely. Quite likely. <laughs> <laughs> Do you have a favorite airport between Denver and Stapleton, DIA and Stapleton? Oh, I would take Stapleton a heartbeat. Why? Why? Would, I, you know, maybe because I, I spent so much time here, but it was, it was smaller. It was more compact. Uh, certainly a little more crazy. 
uh, work by the seat of your pants type operation. I mean, things happen here a little quicker. I mean, things out at DI are still technical and busy, but here, this airport wasn't built for the amount of airplanes that landed and took off every day. Mm, you had 1,800, 2,000 airplanes landed and taken off in this small space. Uh, you had to adapt. It, you had to adapt, and with yeah. the changing wind and weather, we'd take off opposite direction, crossing back and forth. It was just, you had to be on your toes. And when I was on the ground, they all look alike. So. How much different was the weather? here at Stapleton than at DIA where you later worked, given how much closer it is to the mountains? was uh, Out there you could see it coming to some extent. You're a little farther away from the mountains, you could see it build. Here, being close to the mountains, they would literally build every afternoon in the summer. The clouds would build. The clouds would build, the thunderstorms would build, you know, and we just keep going until they get built to a point. But this close, once they roll off the foothills, they're here. We had to turn the airport around. Uh, to get him into the wind. Clear to land, jet lane 2128. Uh, wind show alert now, 25 knot loss on the runway, wind 280 at 1 niner for runway 26. Uh, United uh, 579 going around. Uh, 579, roger. And with this airport, along with Orlando, uh, these two airports had the most thunderstorms and wind shears of any airport in the country. Brian Warner speaking with retired air traffic controller Mike Coulter in 2017. The lower part of the Stapleton Tower building will soon house the second location of Denver-based Flight Co. Brewing, which expects to open next year. And thanks to the team who helps Colorado Matters take flight each day. Carl Bielek, Anthony Cotton, Pete Kramer, Andrea Dukakis, Michelle Fulcher, Matt Hers, Michael Hughes, Carla Jimenez, Pedro Lumbrano, Patrice Mondragon, Shane Rumsey, Ryan Warner. And I'm Nathan Heffel. This is Colorado Matters from CPR News and KRCC.